Good morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 10. As I've mentioned to the congregation before, uh, growing up I was not a particularly ambitious student. In high school I did just enough to earn Hope Scholarship, and then when I got to college and and lost Hope Scholarship, uh, halfway through my freshman year, I did just enough to earn a diploma. For example, when I when I took microeconomics, I made a, a 54 on the first exam, and then after a full night of cramming and by the grace of God, I pulled an 86 on the the second exam, which brought my average to an even 70. And before the final exam, the professor laid my two options in front of me. He said, you can take the average of these two midterms, you can you can keep your C and you can walk away, or you can take the final exam, and whatever you make on the final exam will be your final grade. So you have the opportunity to bump your grade up to a B or even perhaps an A. And I chose the former because the appeal of possibly securing an A or a B in microeconomics was nothing compared to the sheer joy of walking away from microeconomics forever. My philosophy in college was C's and D's get degrees, and my GPA reflected that. But during my senior year, uh, I, was, I was working a little bit harder at this point, and I was assigned a capstone project during the, the last semester of business school, and a large percentage of my final grade was dependent on a 20-minute group presentation. And because it was 11 years ago, I don't remember all the specifics. I can't tell you anything about the course I was taking, the topic I was presenting, or the people that I was working with, but I can tell you everything about the agony and pain of my failure because before sharing the final presentation, each group did a, a practice run for the professor. Naturally, I didn't prepare for it. Right? So we're, we're talking about practice here. So I didn't put a lot of work into this. I thought I'd just show up and and, and, and kind of wing it. Well, the rest of my group did their part. They had note cards full of data and illustrations and complete articulate sentences. And I had one PowerPoint slide with three bullet points. I was supposed to speak for five minutes. I probably spoke for 45 seconds. And I had to really stretch to get to that three quarters of one minute. I remember looking back over and over again at this PowerPoint slide with the three bullet points, hoping that it would magically produce more content and I would have more to say. But it didn't. And it was this embarrassing, brutal moment for me, but it was also the last straw for the rest of my group. As a matter of fact, after my subpar performance in the practice run, they met in the library without me. They redistributed all the important talking points without me, and they lessened my responsibility for the final presentation. In our final presentation, they entrusted me with one simple task, reading the first slide with our topic and our names. Now here's the kicker. They did all the work, and they got an A. Meanwhile, I read four words and four names, one of them being my own, and I also got an A. Like the last man on the bench of the 96 Bulls, I contributed nothing but gained everything. 
And I tell you this story because I realize how a story like this can split the room down the middle. All of the driven, determined, type A personalities say, see, that's why I hate group projects. And then all the laid-back, easygoing, slacker procrastinators like me say, man, I love group projects. But here's the unfortunate reality for all the type A's, for everyone that's in that former group. The fortunate reality is discipleship is a group project. When we consider how Christ made disciples, we realize that his model involves splitting time between three groups. Now we're very familiar with these first two groups. Sometimes Christ taught large groups. The Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew and the Bread of Life Discourse in the Gospel of John would be two of the most famous examples of this. Additionally, in Luke 10, Christ uh, coached 72 followers before sending them out on a mission trip. And in Acts 1, he encouraged that group of 120 followers who were left before commissioning them to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And we know along with instructing the crowds that Christ also poured himself into a small group of believers, specifically the disciples. In fact, most of his earthly ministry, he led this small group. As Eugene Peterson reminds us, Jesus reserved 90% of his ministry for discipling 12 Jews. And, and the overwhelming majority of churches follow Christ's discipleship model in these two areas in some way, right? Like each week, they have large group worship like we're doing right now. Then they come together again for Sunday school, small groups, community groups, life groups, Bible fellowship groups, men's Bible studies, women's Bible studies, and prayer meetings. Every church has a different weekly calendar. Every church has different names for their gathering. But every church generally follows the same formula as Christ. They have large group gatherings and they have small group gatherings. But we, un we must understand that Christ ministered to a third group too, that Christ had an inner circle, which was made up of Peter, James, and John. And on five separate occasions in the Gospels, he pulled these three aside for special intensive sessions of equipping and training. In Mark 1, these three were present for the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. In Mark 5, they were present for the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead. In Mark 9, they were present on the Mount of Transfiguration. In Mark 13, they were present for the Olivet Discourse where Christ explained the end times. And in Mark, Matthew 26, they were present in the garden prior to the trial and crucifixion of Jesus. So Christ loved the crowds. Christ loved the other disciples, but Christ really loved Peter, James, and John. He had an inner circle, and we believe that you should have an inner circle too. Last week, we started rolling out our, our 2022 vision with a charge to renew our commitment to the reading, studying, discussing, and, and savoring of God's Word, because when we engage with God's Word, we receive God's wisdom, and we live by God's design which means, among other things, that we remember His mercy, we sacrifice for His cause, we reflect His image, and we walk in His will. And in this day and age, you can certainly interact with God's Word in a variety of ways, but in 2022, our, our primary means of renewing our minds to the study of Scripture 
is committing to the 5 by 5 by 5 New Testament reading plan. With five minutes per day, five days per week, you'll read through the entire New Testament in a year. So, so this first action step that we talked about last week doesn't require much time or energy or assistance. Honestly, if you miss all the readings from last week, you're only 25 minutes behind. In less than a half hour, you can, you can knock out those first five chapters of Mark and you can be caught up and, and get back on track this week. So, so it's not super intimidating. But as we move deeper into Vision Month, we're going to see the challenges become more daunting. Now, often you hear people say that, that Christ only wants your heart, that Christ only wants your love. And, and as a result, many evangelicals give Christ their heart, but they don't give him anything else. They give Christ their, their love, but not their time, not their money, not their priority. They give Christ a little bit of their attention, but most of the time they are the center of their own universe. But Christ doesn't want your leftovers. And because your natural temptation and my natural temptation will always be shifting focus back to yourself and, and me shifting focus back to myself, we need a small group of believers in our lives who can bring us back to the foot of the cross over and over again. And so this morning, we're going to talk about a new discipleship model. We're going to talk about a new idea, which is really an old idea. We're going to talk about DNA groups. And to give you a, a simple definition, DNA groups are groups of three or four men and three or four women who meet at different times throughout the week for the purpose of discovering, nurturing, and acting on the truth. Now, full disclosure, we'll cover a lot of ground on, on DNA groups. We want to let you know that we're not launching these officially until the first week of March. So we'll have plenty of time to work through all the specific details. So for now, we don't want you to worry as much about, about the how. We want you to focus on the why. So, so let's start by, by reading Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. God's Word says, Therefore, brothers, since we have the confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our body washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as, the, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So since we're dropping into the middle of the, the tenth chapter of, of Hebrews, it would probably help us do a, a little background on the whole letter. So the first thing you need to know about the letter to the Hebrews is that the author is unknown. Uh, throughout church history, scholars and, and theologians have made different suggestions for who may have written Hebrews. Uh, some say Paul, others say Barnabas, the uh, list goes on. Silas, Apollos, Luke, Philip, Priscilla, Aquila, Clement of Rome. All, all of these people have been suggested 
as, as possible authors. However, the vocabulary, the style, and the literary characteristics of the letter don't support any particular claim. So we don't know the author, but we do know the audience. And, and this one shouldn't surprise you, but the letter to the Hebrews was written to the Hebrews. More specifically, it was originally written to first century Jewish Christians who were fighting the temptation to turn away from Christ during a season of severe persecution. And so in response to their wavering faith, the anonymous author challenges them to stay the course. And his primary argument can be summarized in three words. Jesus is better. He says, stay the course, stay on this path, hold on, because Jesus is better. He's a better prophet. He's a better priest. He's a better king. He's better than Moses. He's better than Aaron. He's better than any of the old covenant priests. He is a better sacrifice. He is a better mediator of a better covenant. In the simplest terms, the message of the first ten and a half chapters of Hebrews, and, and really all of the letter of Hebrews, is Jesus is better. Now when we get to verse 19 of chapter 10, we reach another turning point passage. We saw this pattern last week in, in Romans. In the first 11 chapters of Romans, the Apostle Paul explores the depth of the gospel of God's grace. And then in chapters 12 through 16, he explains how we should live in response to the gospel of God's grace. So again, we're talking about simple cause and effect. This is what God has done. This is how you should live in light of what God has done. This is the same play that that Paul ran last week, the author of Hebrews is running it here. First, he established the truth. Jesus is better. Then he's now he's starting to apply the truth in our text. Since Jesus is better, this is how you should live. And he calls us to action with three let us statements. The first call relates to God. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. The second call relates to self. Let us hold fast of our hope without wavering, for he who promises is faithful. And the third call relates to others. Let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works. On a fundamental level, DNA groups check all three of these boxes. If we follow the, the, the formula here, they're going to check all three of these boxes every time they get together. When you discover the truth with your mind, you're, you're looking up and you're considering God. When you nurture the truth in your heart, you're, you're looking in and considering your current spiritual state. And then when you act on the truth with your words and works, you're looking out and you're considering the needs of others. So let's walk through how DNA groups will function together. So first, DNA groups assist you in discovering the truth with your mind. Discovering the truth with your mind. The Georgia Baptist Mission Board has a program called Read Georgia, where local churches can partner with local schools to work with children on their, their literacy, literacy skills. Seems like I need some help here in this area. Literacy skills. Oh, of all the words that you could mispronounce in this sermon. So anyway, they, let's get back on track. They started a few years ago because they discovered 27% of Georgia's third graders are reading below their grade level. And that may not seem like a big deal. You may say, well, they've got time to catch up. They're still young. But 
Research shows that children who are not reading on grade level by the fourth grade are 70% more likely to end up in jail or on welfare. Literacy is very important to development. And while we should be excited to see where Georgia Baptists are, are willingly stepping up in the fight against childhood illiteracy, we should realize that in our context, in the Bible Belt, we're dealing with a much bigger crisis of literacy. We, we are surrounded by biblical illiteracy. You know, many Christ followers, many people who love the Lord, believe in His Word like they believe in the U.S. Constitution. That they love it, they, they fight for it, they talk about it, they quote it, but ultimately they don't have a very firm grip on it. And as a result, many lean into this brand of pseudo-Christianity, which is based on their gut, based on their feelings, and not rooted in God's Word. And the problem with trusting your own intuition is this. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things. Proverbs 16.25 said, There's a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. In other words, your gut is wrong. Your, your feelings are, are wrong. When, when you weigh everything apart from God's Word and you say to yourself, that looks right, that seems right, more often than not, it's not right. And, and to clarify, I'm not, I'm not discouraging you from considering God on your own. I'm not discouraging you from, from studying God's Word on your own, from praying on your own, from, from worshiping on your own. You can and should spend one-on-one -on -one time with your Heavenly Father, but you will grow more in your faith if you're having personal interactions with God and collective interactions with God. See, if you attempt discipleship completely alone, your dis spiritual development will be slower at best and warped at worst. You'll understand some biblical truth, but you'll fall short of experiencing everything God has for you. But when you live in community, you learn and process the principles, God's word, the principles of God's word together, and you encourage each other to put the principles into action. This is the primary function of, of DNA groups. When they gather together, they're going to use a simple formula where they ask four questions about their specific text. Who is God? What has He done? Who are we in light of what God has done? And how should we live? Or, or more specifically, they'll consider the passage, they'll consider the chapter, they'll consider the book they're reading, and they'll ask, what does this say about the character and nature of God? What does this say about the work of God? What does this say about our identity, and, and how does this change how we should live our lives? This is what's happening in, in Hebrews 10. Remember, the Jewish Christians were discouraged in the face of suffering. So how does the author encourage them? He preaches the gospel to them. He doesn't give them new revelation. He gives them an old affirmation. Look at what he says again, verse 19. Brothers, since we have the confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest who is over the house of God, let us draw near. In other words, brothers, 
I know you're pessimistic about your circumstances, but Christ secured a place for you in the holy places. He tore a curtain for you to enter into the presence of your heavenly Father. I understand that you're per- that you're rattled by your persecutors, but Christ is your great high priest. He resides over the house of God and every square inch of earth is subject to his sovereign rule. And I realize You're uncertain about your future, but Christ gave his body and poured out his blood as a perfect, complete, sufficient sacrifice to ensure that your future is secured. So listen, when we talk about discovering truth, we don't always mean for the first time. More often than not, you're not discovering truth, you're rediscovering truth. But RNA is is less catchy than DNA. Verses 19-21, the author of Hebrews is not sharing any new revelation with his audience. He's just affirming what they already know. And then he says, based on that, based on what Christ has done, let us draw near. Let us draw near with a true heart and a full assurance of faith. We have a full assurance of faith, not based on anything in us, not based on anything that we say or do, not based on any measure of good works that we complete, but we have a full assurance of faith based on what Christ has done. Let's keep moving. Second, DNA groups assist you in nurturing the truth in your heart. So the truth is, comes into your mind, and then it goes to your heart. Verse 23, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now, when we consider this phrase, hold fast, we must avoid both the legalistic and and laissez-faire understanding of it. Because the legalistic Christian will, will read this verse and focus on the first half and say, I must hold fast. I must keep my confession of hope. I must not waver. I cannot and will not waver under any circumstances. I will keep a death grip on Jesus. And then the laissez-faire Christian reads the last phrase and says, God is faithful. God has everything under control, so I'm going to let go and let God. But in reality, holding fast involves both you and God. You should think about your spiritual journey like a, a high ropes course. And this may seem like a strange analogy, but just just follow me for a second. Humor me for a second. When you're on a high ropes course and you look down, you may feel like your life depends on your ability to hang on. You may feel like your your life depends on your ability to, to, to make the next right step. But if you slip, If you fall, what happens? Your harness catches you, right? Because he who promised is faithful. But at the same time, will you make it to the other side of the course if you just dive off the side and say, Jesus, take the wheel? Will you make it to the other side of the course if you just let go and let God? Well, of course not. You hold fast. By by taking steps to walk into a deeper relationship with Christ. 
with the understanding that every one of your steps is supported, strengthened, and motivated by Christ. And often, one of the, 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 the graces that God gives us in, in helping us hold fast is other believers. It's the church. It's community. You know, Paul David Tripp argues that we must let go of Jesus and me isolated, independent Christianity. The Christianity of the New Testament was deeply relational and interdependent. You know, we often talk about having a personal relationship with Jesus. That's a very popular phrase in, in Christian vernacular. And you should have a personal relationship with Jesus, but you should have a collective relationship with Jesus too. You need other believers. In addition to your quiet time, your, your prayer life, your spiritual disciplines, you need others who are pointing you back to the gospel. Because as the wise man Solomon said, two are better than one. At the end of Acts chapter 2, once the church was established, we get a picture of this type of thriving Christian community. Listen to what Luke records about the early church. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Now, we could spend another sermon unpacking the relationships described in Acts 2. Uh, we don't have time for that day, so I just want to—I want to just quickly point to five words that define the fellowship that we see there in the old, in the early church. The first word is this: prayerful. The early church prayed with power and expectation. Earlier in chapter two, uh, Peter preached a sermon, and and, and three thousand were saved. And, and we marvel at the description of the Holy Spirit's work, and we're inspired by Peter's boldness to preach with such conviction, but often we gloss over the role of, of prayer in this wave of salvation, because before Pentecost, the disciples spent days in the upper room praying to God and waiting on the gift of the Holy Spirit. They prayed for hours Peter preached for minutes, and many came to salvation. And today we often get it backwards, where we pray for minutes and preach for hours, and we can't understand why God isn't moving in our midst. Second word is consistent. They were always together. They were meeting in large and small groups. They were gathering in the temple by the thousands and gathering in homes by the few. The word together is, is an overarching theme in these verses. They were together praising God. They were together breaking bread. They were together in the temple. They were together in their homes. Third word is authentic. Because the early church was spending every day together, because they were walking through the rhythms of, of daily life together, they saw the good, bad, and ugly sides of each other. They couldn't fake it. With one another, you know, often we can can develop these uh, cases of, of of church face, and if you don't know what that that means, 
it, it means coming into this place and putting on an Oscar-worthy performance to convince everyone that you have everything all together. It means walking in the church and being asked, how are you? And being asked this question, and even though your dog died and you got a horrible report from the doctor and your car got sideswiped at Target, you still say, I'm so good. I'm blessed. Thank you for asking. See, we can't afford to put up that type of front with one another. We have to be open and, and honest with one another. We have to have an inner circle that we can trust and depend on. See, I'm not, I'm not talking about you raising your hand and, and listing your sins in the middle of Sunday morning worship. But I am talking about you gathering with two or three other believers and, and letting them help carry your burdens. You know, I, I have two friends who, who've seen the absolute best and absolute worst in me. They were high school teammates. They were college roommates. They were in a small group uh, with me after college. Uh, they've seen my best. They were there when I married Lacey, when I graduated college and seminary. They were there when my three children were born, and they've also seen my worst. They were there for a lot of, of poor decisions that I made as a young man. And so I can't hide from them. I can't fake it with them. They know me too well. Because we have this authentic bond, we, we push each other to be better. Which brings us to our fourth word, accountable. When we're more genuine with each other, we start to open up about our struggles. We start to let our friends see where we fall short, and our friends are able to pray for us, counsel us, and encourage us. Our friends are able to point us back to Jesus. You know, when I hit a wall in ministry, or when I fall short in a particular way, I have friends who I can call. And when we connect, and some of these are friends from seminary that are all over the United States, when we connect, I'll lay out my questions. I'll unload my doubts, I'll illuminate my insecurities, and then they will pose thoughtful questions, they will encourage, they'll speak truth, and they'll pray over me. When I'm, when I'm wavering, they're there to steady the ship. That's what speaking the truth in love looks like, and, and, and we love to, to use this phrase in the church, but... We generally approach speaking the truth in love from two angles. One, we don't do it at all. Or two, we do do it, and we do it poorly. We make a spectacle of open rebuke. We shame in public. We speak out of turn. We speak without poise. And listen, these are tough conversations. These are tough conversations. When, when you're talking about sin, issues, it's very easy to execute those conversations naturally or easily, but we have to cultivate an ability to speak the truth in love. If you care about someone, you need to be willing to pull them aside, sit them down, and gently help them see the sin in their life. We have to be willing to speak truthfully. Proverbs 27 says, Better is an open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of the enemy. 
Then the last word, sacrificial. Finally, the early church sacrificed for one another. Verses 44 and 45 of Acts 2, So they had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And to clarify, the early church was not living in some sort of, of commune. They weren't pooling, pooling and, and redistributing their resources equally. They simply held their wealth and possessions lightly. They were readily prepared to leverage their resources to support their church family when a need arose. And so to nurture the truth in our hearts, we need to create groups which are prayerful, consistent, authentic, accountable, and sacrificial. All right, let's go to the last point. DNA groups assist you in acting on the truth with your words and works. So after discovering the truth by asking four questions and nurturing the truth by engaging in prayer, showing authenticity, confessing sin, repenting to God, and making sacrifices with one another, you act on the truth. You live out the gospel. You honor God with your words and your works. Verse 24, the third let us statement. Let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works. And then right after that, in verse 25, our passage ends with two specific commands. The first one is, don't neglect meeting together. The author says, make sure you're not neglecting to meet together, which is the habit of some. Now listen, church, I've been Southern Baptist for all of my 32 years. So I know how much Southern Baptists hate any kind of change. And also know from being really involved in church and, and teetering on burnout on a few occasions how easily it can be to talk yourself out of making another commitment. And so I know you may hear all this and you may be tempted to say, I don't have time for a DNA group. You know, I, I don't I don't need anyone. I I've been burned by the church before. I, I can't trust anyone. No one understands my struggle. I can't relate to anyone. You know, we talk a lot about how the government has, has isolated us in the last almost two years with, with quarantines and, and social distancing. But in reality, we've been isolating ourselves for much longer than that. You know, I heard Matt Chandler say one time that over the years, our tables have gotten smaller and our privacy fences have gotten taller. And I think that's true. That we live in this digital age where we're supposed to be so connected, but, it, but it's really isolated us really lessen the amount that we experience community. And so it can be so easy to, to play into that, but discipleship is a group project. You need an inner circle. 
to, to push you towards Christ, to evade your own understanding, to shun your own wisdom, to turn you away from your own evil desires. You need an inner circle to help you trust God deeply, acknowledge God readily, fear God fully, and follow God completely. You need this. I need this. Our church needs this. Because it yields a positive result. Look at the last half of verse 25. It says, Don't neglect meeting together, but instead encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day, and that capital D day is the last day, as you see the day drawing near. In our passage, the, the author of Hebrews was offering a countercultural encouragement to the Jewish Christians. In the face of their persecution, the encouragement was not, hey guys, listen, life will get better. And, that, and that's, that's almost a second nature encouragement that we give to ourselves and, and one another, isn't it? You have a terrible week at work, you say to yourself, well, next week will be better. Your friend has a rough month where everything goes wrong. You say, hey, uh, next next month will be better. We, we gather together on, on New Year's, New Year's Eve, after having a horrible year, personally, collectively, and we, and we just, we see that ball drop and we say to ourselves, man, next year will be better. And we play this game, we say the future will be better, the future will be better, the future will be better, and it keeps us moving on. But the encouragement was not, life will get better. The encouragement was, brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ, life may not get better. As a matter of fact, sometimes life will get worse, but Jesus is better. If you want to condense this entire sermon into one sentence, you could say, DNA groups exist for the purpose of reminding one another Jesus is better. As the final day draws near, you need brothers and sisters in Christ who point you back to Him. You need an inner circle of believers who can say, listen, I know yesterday was hard. I know today was hard. And you know tomorrow could be even harder, but Jesus is better. And we can say that even though we don't know what the next hour holds, the next day holds, the next week holds, or the next year holds. But we can say that because we know how the story ends. Jesus is better. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word and, and the ways that it, it challenges us. And, and Lord, we know that community starts with the gospel, that the gospel connects us to Christ and to one another. We know community thrives in, in small groups. And Lord, we're thankful for the ways that we already have to gather around God's word, Wednesdays in the word and, and Sunday school specifically. But Lord, we look forward to adding this new model for discipleship in 2022. And we just ask that you would 
you would bless our work. And, and Father, I, I just pray that if there's anyone in this room who is having those those doubts about this or don't feel like they can make the time commitment, don't feel like they can open themselves up to, to others in that way, Lord, that you would you would help them see in the coming weeks that discipleship is a group project and that there's a, a great benefit of making yourself known and knowing others in Christ. So Father, as we continue moving forward in 2022 with these uh, plans and, and strategies, Lord, we just pray, pray for your blessing. We pray that we would stay on the path that you have for us and that we would continue doing all these things um, for the sole purpose of your glory, for the sole purpose of making your son's name known in Lowndes County, that we would continue to gather together and grow in the gospel and then go out into our community and go with the gospel. So Lord, help us to be the church that you've called us to be. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.